After finding a way to survive for nearly half a year on the remote Auckland Islands after the wreck of their ship, the five-man crew of the Grafton simply had to wait for rescue. But as winter truly set in, another ship named the Invercald and its 25-person crew shattered itself upon the dangerous cliffs on the northern end of the same island. However, whereas the Grafton crew found a way to work together to brave the harsh conditions, less than 20% of the original crew of the Invercald would leave the island alive. Yes. <laughs> like you're gonna be dead. You're dead pretty soon. Your heart is literally a keg. <laughs> I don't know why, but well, first of all, my Instagram reels just keep promoting for me to go drunk driving right now for whatever reason. It is. I don't know if you've been seeing those. I don't know what the millennials are doing on TikTok, but they finally got into the reels. Yeah, it's so weird. Like I'll be getting like a fishing lure underwater, and it's labeled as my car my keys. keys, and then there's a fish that chases it, and it says me twenty beers deep. I don't know why I keep getting those, but they made me think that I was like, I want to buy a thirty rack of beer on a day I have nothing going on on like a weekend, and just see if I can polish that whole thing off by like nine o'clock at night. And then I thought about it more. I'm like, that's what alcoholics do. Yeah, that's there is there are a lot of people that do that. Yeah, they go to meetings. They don't have to think about it. Yeah, <laughs> they just do it. Oh my god, I they, have to think about it. So that, at least that's a good step for me. That is true. You do have a moral not moral but you in your brain you do have the decision of do i want to drink 30 beers or do i have to to prevent the shakes <laughs> exactly to feel something <laughs> speaking of feeling something welcome to the gems of history podcast everybody i'm jacob shop and evan roosh is here with me where are you gonna go with speaking of the shakes until <laughs> i said <laughs> i was gonna go with like alcoholism or something along those lines but oh. we got off of that track a little bit speaking of making you want to drink the gems of history <laughs> yeah, there we podcast. go we used to do that all the time. We used to get hammered for this, but you know, then we grew up. I didn't think about that a year lot. and a half. And then, like the show now is so much better. Oh yeah, <laughs> like no one. It's actually grounded. <laughs> it's the probably every guy group has said this, but let's get drunk and like just record the podcast. Being we, the guy group that did we, that, we did that. Yeah, it's such a better product when you're like. Do, let's do some Google searches. Beforehand. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for some podcasts that might work, but sure. like for a show where you're actually trying to educate people, it gets a little rough. <laughs> for a show where you have to uh, pronounce names from foreign countries quite often, like Raynal. Yeah. <laughs> or type out a long, long page, like long form pages of notes to get through the, the episode. Yeah. It's, it's, it gets a little tough when you're drunk. But so, we're not drunk today. So. No. <laughs> but you know what we are doing, Evan? Yeah, yeah I do know. <laughs> yeah, I guess you do know. You, got, you got me off guard. We are talking about the Grafton once again. So if you didn't listen to the first part of this two-part series, go listen to it first. What are you doing I mean, here? There's yeah. going to be a lot of stuff you missed. And it's all the fun, like not fun stuff, but happier stuff in the story. So... Think about that all the time. Like, what if you just started watching episode two of Star Wars without any, like, Attack of the Clones, Star Wars, without any context? I mean, that's what our parents had to do, because they just saw all of the end of the story. And right, yeah. And never got what happened before. <laughs> that's so. very true. They talk about the Clone Wars, and 
In the seventies, my dad had to be like, "Hmm, that the, will definitely be an animated series." The what now? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe one day we'll find out who his father is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Three years later, holy wow! <laughs> but yeah, today we're going to be talking with uh, the Grafton about how now another group has to try and survive on these remote islands with them and neither group knows about the other so that's the fun part that is definitely the most fun part and as we mentioned in the first episode evan made a good point saying like you get both parts of the human experience to the extreme in this one so it's a perfect like if you're into psychology it's a perfect case study to look at to see how does this affect people in certain scenarios it truly is mind-blowing how different these groups end up. Yeah. And same, relatively same situation. Well, I mean, pretty much the same situation. They're on the same island, but they never interact with each other. So they're in perfect isolation for a perfect, like, test case, like, case study for yeah. both of these. It's so cool. It there's sucks no- for the people that don't handle it well, but pretty cool. <laughs> it's, it's, it gets rough. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So when we left the story of the shipwrecked crew of the Grafton, it was the first weeks of May in the year 1864, and they had established themselves in their new lodgings, which they named Epigwayt. Thomas Musgrave, the de facto leader of the group, had just celebrated his 32nd birthday. And along with their leader, the four other men had been stockpiling as much meat from the nearby seal population as they could before winter hit them full force and their hunting consequently became much more difficult. See, that's why we don't drink as much now, because a pig Wyatt, mm-hmm. <laughs> a pig Wyatt was I still, very tough. Still don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I couldn't find anywhere that said how to pronounce it, so that's how it's going to be. If you want to correct us, give us a five-star Apple review. No, <laughs> actually, <laughs> yeah, do that. <laughs> Tell your friends. Yes. <laughs> However, at the other end of Auckland Island, some 20 miles north of a pig Wyatt, the Invercald had just dashed itself upon the treacherous coastline amidst a nighttime storm. Some of the surviving men had found each other upon the shore and huddled together in the darkness to wait out the rest of their fateful night. But when the next day broke, that was when their nightmare that was when their nightmare was truly going to begin. And that is where we're going to pick back up with our story. And now we wake up from the nightmare. Ooh. Oh, this sucks. <laughs> this, uh, still, still nightmare. <laughs> Can you imagine? It's just Inception, but just constant nightmares. You just keep waking <laughs> up to like a different shipwreck. <laughs> it's like you're on the ship with Captain Ahab as yeah. the whale is destroying your boat. You're begging for Davy Jones to come and put you in his locker full of stinky gym socks. After, a while, SpongeBob. after a while, you just wake up and just be like, you know what? This is it. This is, the, this is my life now. That's Dallas. So when daylight broke on the next morning after the Invercald head dashed upon the rocks, the crew gathered together and counted their numbers. Of the 25 who were originally aboard the ship, they were now reduced to 19. 
The remaining men gathered up the longest planks that they could find to make an improvised lean-to on the beach as a shelter. Many of the men had lost their clothing, mainly their boots, and were walking around freezing, walking around with freezing, bloody, bare feet. One man, who was the cook, was a sight to behold, as he had put on his best suit before the ship had struck the coast, and was now barely able to move in his tight, wet clothes. Oh, he put on his best suit. Yeah. I respect that a lot. This like, is, if you're going to go down, go down and meet God in your best suit. <laughs> it's very reminiscent of the Titanic, where the people just like kind of succumb to the fact that they're going to die and just sit on their beds and like look real nice. Yeah, that's what this guy did, except he didn't die immediately. <laughs> yeah, he's like, oh, oh, that sucks, being wet. Can you imagine being wet in a suit? In a suit. In a suit. And it's all, sh- like, shrunk on your body. Yeah. yeah. So it's definitely a, a larger vessel that shipwrecks compared to our original oh, crew, yes. the Grafton, where it's five on the Grafton. Yeah, five on the Grafton, 25 on this one. And no one died in the shipwreck of the Grafton. No, and comparatively theirs was a lot more tame oh yeah theirs kind of just got pushed up to the rocks and kind of tipped Mm -hmm. and the invercald like literally went underneath the cliffs and like tore the masts off and stuff and then pretty much split in half so right and the grafton crew did a great job even before it tipped over like it not barely tipped over but they had it secured and the wind like you mentioned just just tipped it over. Yeah, pretty much. So they 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 wrecked, quote unquote. Yes. A wreck is a wreck, but they could still like salvage stuff from the grafton. They but. had time to like grab stuff from the hull and get it up on the, the dry part of the ship and stuff. So they had like a lot more composed energy to use. Right. They're like Batman. If he has enough time, he can do anything. Exactly. <laughs> and millions of dollars. And millions of dollars, yeah. But as the men of the Infercald soon realized, they were pretty hopeless in this situation. They were surrounded by cliffs and the cold, salty sea. Any water that they found was brackish and slimy and really did them no good. No life seemed to be present on the island aside from themselves, and it seemed only a matter of time before they ceased to be alive anymore either. And this thought was punctuated by the fact that one of the corpses of their shipmates was held aloft by an inaccessible part of the wrecked Invercald, ever present when the men would look out to sea. Oh my, that's daunting. Like, you want to talk about psychology, that's one for you. Every time you look out, you see a body. Constantly reminded of the fact that you're in this terrible position. (sighs) Man. The men were able to scavenge whatever they... Whatever food they could find from the wreck, saving only two pounds of wet biscuits and about the same amount of salted pork. They quickly attempted to start a fire, finding that fortunately they did have two boxes of matches. And once a fire was lit, one of the men who had the matches attempted to dry his box of matches by holding them near the fire, but he ended up burning the entire box. No! (laughs) For some reason, the first mate, Andrew Smith, who had the other box of matches, tried the same thing before one of the sailors, a man named Robert Holding, snatched them away and refused to give them back. That is so funny. That's your mom catching you doing something like... Like trying to figure out the remote for the TV and keep it hanging mute or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just stop burning up all of our matches. But it's very interesting where they crash land as well, because they are truly in the mountainous 
relatively mountainous area of the island. Like we talked about in episode one, that it's not a hospitable island to begin with. Yeah. They are in cliffs, cliffs. Well, in... It sucks for them too because it's it is a lower elevation part of the island. Like it's hilly still. The whole mm-hmm. island is, but where a pigweed is is more mountainous. But the northern part is all just these real small islands and really treacherous rocky cliffs. Yeah. So it's you. It's like a horse apiece. You either want to climb higher up or do you want to have to deal with more precarious footholds trying to get anywhere. And either decision is kind of going to screw you exactly, in one yeah. way or another. When Holding looked to the captain after taking the box of matches from the first mate, the captain's name, George Delgarno, he was supposed to be the leader. But when Holding looked at him, all he found was a paralyzed man who offered no help. For five days and nights, the crew camped out on the beach, cramped together in an eight-foot by five-foot lean-to, sharing body and head lice between their huddled mass. 19 guys. 19 guys all just huddled together sharing lice. That's the grossest thing. Of In all a time. 40 square foot area. Oh, that's not even the size of this basement. Nope. Like they are all packed in like sardines. Yep. Literally on top of each other, trying, just trying to get any respite from the, the weather. That's yeah. kind of cr- like with the graft and everyone immediately was like we should get to work we need to yep. do things to survive and they were they took the exact opposite approach five days they they laid in this little hut on the beach but like holding said the captain is the one that's supposed someone has to take charge and that's supposed to be the captain because yeah. everyone still looks to the same order of leadership right after you get off of the ship as you had on the ship and if the captain's not saying anything then there's no one to lead and that's why the Grafton had such a quick response because Musgrave kind of took charge. Right. So, gosh, that is so important, especially with 19 men. Yeah. Once their meager rations ran out, the men ravenously ate whatever shellfish they could find before someone else took it from them. Others pulled out the island cabbage that the Grafton crew had supplemented their meals with, but overall, it wasn't nearly enough. The body that was suspended on the wreck eventually fell off and washed on shore, and like the other five who had died in the wreck, the men took that corpse's clothing to stay warmer for themselves. Eventually, the men knew that they couldn't just stay on the beach, and a group of four men attempted to climb one of the cliffs to get inland. So finally, after five days, someone takes initiative. Yeah, we gotta move, people. After a day had passed, three of the four men returned, stating that one of them, named Tate, had fallen onto the rocks. Robert Holding, seeing that it was possible to traverse the cliffs and knowing he could only rely on himself at this point to survive, climbed up these cliffs on his own. Surveying the land, he realized that if the men went to the northeastern coast, they would likely have more chances at shelter. So after spending the night alone on the hilltop, where he found some animal tracks, Holding returned to the men to see that Tate had actually rejoined the group, but was pretty much on death's door. Props to him. Like, so he, he did fall, but fell. gathered himself back and got himself back. Yep. Fell on the rocks. Everyone abandoned him and he somehow found his way back. But everyone was like, he's a walking corpse at this point pretty much the conversation of hey you bastards you left me for dead <laughs> yep has to be a tough if one if you remember it yeah 
Holding, after returning, relayed his findings to the other men, who agreed that they should attempt to get to the other side of the coast, leaving one volunteer to look after Tate until he died. Three other men had gone off on their own as well, so Holding took initiative and helped all of the others up to the cliff, and once they got up, they were welcomed by those other three men who had gone ahead of them, and they luckily had killed a small pig. Hey, we're back. They had already eaten the raw liver, but they cooked and ate the rest, with some men licking the blood from the ground like animals, just proving how desperate they are for food. Once the volunteer with Tate had smelled the cooking pig, he rejoined the group and left Tate to die alone, knowing that his best chance of survival was with the rest of the group. Oh, man. <laughs> Can't really blame the guy. No, it's... When you're talking about survival, you can never really judge what other people do in most cases. Exactly. But he's like, man, I would love some pig's blood right now. It's the same when someone's grieving. You can never expect a person to grieve a certain way. So if you're in yeah. an extraordinary circumstance like this you're going to react at an impulse, so... Right, yeah, impulse is a great way to describe describe that. Yeah. After eating, Holding coaxed the straggling line of men as far as he could towards the eastern coast, but seeing as he wasn't a captain or a mate, he had no authority over these men. It also didn't help that some of the men didn't even know each other's names. Oh, how long were they sailing before they ran into the rocks? So that's the interesting thing. Holding was kind of a sign-on. A lot of these guys had been sailing for months before mm. Holding joined them. So Holding came on in Australia, and he kind of said, that's pro why I think I had the most energy, mm -hmm. is because I had been well-fed for a longer period of time before I got on the boat, whereas mm -hmm. these guys were subsisting on like ship rations. And so yeah. he thinks that's the reason why he survived, honestly, it, or at least attributes part of it to that. But... Yeah, a lot. Of, some of these guys had known each other for months, but other guys were like him, where they just signed on and were just ship hands, the newbies. Yeah, yeah. and from a sh like a ladder of importance, ship hands aren't important, so right. no one really tends to care what your name is. As they went on the hilltop, the cook and three sailors went off in search of more pigs, with only the three sailors returning to the group. Many of the men refused to go any further and ended up laying in the grass, and Captain Delgarno and his mates, Smith and Mahoney, were ordering the two ship's boys to fetch them water, which they drank out of the boys' boots to avoid going to get it themselves. So you can really see that the people in positions of power start to use that. Yeah, abuse it quite a bit. That's so... Why out of the boot? <laughs> because they didn't have anything else, and they're like... Get me my cup. <laughs> I also don't know if ships, like, ship boys was a common thing. Like, did they just have boys on oh, the yeah. ship? Like, I know they had, like, 14-year-olds, because 14-year-olds went to work on ships at that age. Mm -hmm. But it makes it seem like these two boys were just kind of there as, like, add-ons to be on the ship. I think it was still a popular practice to have children on ships. Like, just one or two for, like, small, dainty work. Or, like, stuff like this. Oh, it was actually, Ship's Boy was actually a job title, I guess. It wasn't oh. just like having a boy. Oh, it it's was, on LinkedIn. Yeah, a, a grown man or woman sometimes could sign aboard as a Ship's Boy. So I guess they oh. weren't actually boys. I was just definitely <laughs> also picturing five-year-olds running with Yep. <laughs> I guess the younger ones were called Powder Monkeys. 
<laughs> uh, I think that's because they always had to run and grab the powder during fights. Probably, because they're small and they can get anywhere. Yes. <laughs> so once everyone started laying down in the grass, Holding gave up and returned to the beach to search for more items that may have washed ashore. Another man did join him, and the two found the cook's body on the way back, the one that didn't accompany the group of four on the way back. And upon reaching the beach, they also found Tate's decomposing body. Two more men gone. Holding and his companion found some putrid meat in the wreckage, which they did cook and attempted to eat, but they pretty much said it was inedible at that point. The next day, four other men rejoined them at the beach and found the body of one of the ship's pigs under a rock, which Holding attempted to pull out, but it was so decomposed that it ripped in half when he pulled on it. But they still ate it. Oh no, fellas, fellas, fellas. So you said that they joined them back at the beach. Just to recap, they're in two different places right now. Like there's one that's kind of up on the northeast and another one at the beach. Yeah, right? so... Holding had tried to escort the line of, well, it would have been like 17, because mm-hmm. the one guy stayed with Tate. He tried to escort them up the cliffs, across a hill, into like the other coast, pretty much, just because it was a lower lie, and it had more opportunity for shelter. And the men pretty much gave up, like 200 yards from where they needed to get to. And Holding, like I said, wasn't a captain. He wasn't a mate, so no one listened to him when he mm-hmm. gave orders. So he... He's like, I'm done, and went back to the beach. He's like, I'll see if I can find my own stuff. Sure. And then he went with the boatswain, which is like a boat like mechanic, kind of a handyman. Mm-hmm. And then four other guys came back. So now there's six on the beach, and then the rest of them are off on the hill, Got just it. laying there. Right, right, yeah, <laughs> pouting. So after ripping a pig in half and eating it, it wasn't long until Holding's initial companion on the beach suggested that the men do the unthinkable. He offered that the men should draw lots. The loser would die so that the rest of the men could survive. Oh, I was... I did not expect that to happen oh, yeah. this fast. They jumped to cannibalism real quick. This is under a week. Yeah. Well, yeah, about a week. About a week, uh, yeah. Exactly a week, pretty much, yep. Wow, they A lot got... longer than the Donner Party waited. Or a lot shorter, shorter than the yeah. time the Donner Party waited. Wow, was a... <laughs> also, the Donner Party had cattle, so I guess... Yeah, yeah, but, but still, still a week. A week. Yeah. <laughs> this guy was not holding back. Man, I can't picture like a week from today being mm, could really just eat someone. Loser of fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> so, at the suggestion, Robert Holding flatly refused, and after a sleepless night, he ran away from the group in fear for his life. Yeah, especially if he's the one that. Like says no when is making a scene. Yep. And like when he left, another guy who his name was like Big Dutch Joe or something like that said like he would go with holding and holdings like I feel like you're gonna follow me and then just bash my head with a rock, so I'm gonna go on my own. Yeah, you stay with the camp. <laughs> yeah. So, I know how you voted. <laughs> so he just ran away. Yeah. So while the Grafton crew back at Epigwaiit was worrying about finding food as weather remained unpredictable and snow began to fall, Robert Holding was surviving on his own along the coastline by plucking limpets off of rocks and cooking them, noting that they tasted like eggs. Oh. Limpets are pretty much like a type of snail. So he like 
would slide his knife underneath them and pluck them off rocks, and then he would just suck them out of the shells after cooking them and eat them. I'm not going to lie. I could see these being pretty tasty. Apparently, they tasted like eggs. So, (laughs) After eating these, he took the bear shells with him and went to go show the other men that there was a source of food on the northeastern beaches. But when Holding returned to the spot that he had left the captain and the other men on the hill, he found that they had barely moved in the 12 days that he was gone, only moving to tend to the fire. What do you... That's so much time. Yeah. 12 days? They were still just laying there. That's nuts. They were sending off the the ship's boys to go fill their boots with water and stuff, but they were just eating the cabbage like the island cabbage quote-unquote which is what i'm calling it because i don't use the scientific name right yeah and just not moving wow most of the group had bare frostbitten feet and having been without substantial food for around 23 days they were all beginning to display the symptoms of starvation according to the book island of the lost which is our main source for the series quote all of them would have displayed dull listless eyes dry cracked skin hair loss, muscular weakness, mental lassitude, and the loss of bladder control. Their feet and hands would have been constantly numb, and their legs and arms twisted up with agonizing cramps, end quote. Oh, yeah, I mean, we talked about scurvy, uh, or the effects of scurvy, and how your bones and your joints just literally start to get so sore you can't move. And they start re-breaking. And they start re-breaking, so I'm sure this is the same exact effect as that. Yeah, your body just has nothing to subsist on. You're super dehydrated. Yeah. Your body just starts to eat itself. Exactly. Very crazy. We talked about it kind of a little more in depth in the Donner Party episodes about like what actually happens scientifically to your body. Yeah, not fun. But as women usually survive longer than men in scenarios like this, so it's not looking good for a bunch of male sailors lying on a hill. That does not surprise me at all. <laughs> After telling the men about the food on the beach, Robert Holding designated five of the most able-bodied men to follow him, not wanting to deal with another long straggle of over a dozen people. Without the captain taking a leadership role, Holding realized that he really needed to keep the men going on his own. Once the men saw a glimpse of the food in the distance, they did move more eagerly, and Holding was even able to capture a bird and cook that, along with the limpets, for what he referred to as their most comfortable night since the wreck. Wow, like three weeks later. (laughs) All he needed was a bird. Yeah. (laughs) The next morning, Holding sent one of the men with him back to the other six on the hill to tell them to come join the rest of the group. However, when the messenger returned, he only brought four men with him. With the other two dying on the hill, the group of survivors was now down to ten. After having eaten, the original five men moved on to try and find a more weatherproof place to stay to avoid the winter weather and possible death by exposure. Luckily for them, they were able to finally catch a small break. After pushing through some brush, first mate Andrew Smith came across the remnants of the ruined Hardwick settlement, which was the doomed attempt at colonizing the Auckland Islands from nearly two decades earlier. And I briefly mentioned this in the first episode, this Hardwick settlement, but she goes into more detail on it. And I just wanted to mention one point was that, first of all, it was a London-based expedition, and when they got there, they realized that there was a bunch of Maori people who had already been there trying to colonize the island, or like <laughs> attempting to like make it livable. Right. And so they're just like, well, you guys can still live here, but we're in charge. <laughs> and then 
all of them proceeded to just get way too drunk all the time, and they didn't have a prison on the island big enough to hold all the people that kept getting drunk. And then one of the doctor's sisters got so drunk that she tried to shoot her doctor brother and herself, but missed because she was too drunk. And then they're like, all right, this isn't going to work. England. <laughs> Colonize. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I just thought it was funny. There's a, She goes into like a, the entire story in the book Island of the Lost. So if you want to hear all about it, you can read the book. But yeah, I just thought that was funny. <laughs> England. Don't weaponize. <laughs> Colonize. When the Invercald survivors found the settlement nearly a month after their ship's demise, all that remained of the colony was one last house looking sadly broken down. Most of it was open to the wind, but the room with the fireplace had a fairly intact roof, so the men decided to huddle inside. Holding and Smith left to find food, and luckily they found a seal in the water. They eventually bashed in enough with rocks to kill it, but in the process, Holding had sliced two of his fingers to the bone in an attempt to stab into the seal with his knife. Did he forget where his hands were? Did he try to like grab its head and then stab himself? Like that's it, how do you pull it, that off? Like their skin is literally so thick and rubbery that the knife just like bounced off and went right into his hand. Oh gosh! Yeah. Like he tried to slit the th- thing's throat, and eventually it just died because they hassled it so much. Oh my god! Yeah, it hard to kill seals with a knife. That's why people just bash him in the head. That's a he played way too much Call of Duty. <laughs> like he did way too many. He tried to command. He tried to yeah. Or what's the uh, in the new Call of Duties where you like sneak up on someone behind them? Oh, uh, like the finishing move. Yeah, thing? I, I can't think of. I it. don't remember what execution. It yeah. He tried to do that to the seal. Didn't work. After killing the seal, they brought the meat back to the hut and ate it, sleeping through the night under a cover for the first time in weeks. The next day, the rest of the men from the beach joined them, and together, all of them indulged in the vain hope that those who had established the settlement that they now inhabited would come back and rescue them, despite all of the clear evidence that Hardwick had been abandoned for years. (laughs) Yeah, that's very misplaced hope. I don't think anyone's coming back. Captain Captain Delgarno now had another chance to step in and lead. But once again, according to Island of the Lost, quote, Captain Delgarno had another opportunity to step into a leadership role and organize his men into work parties and hunting groups. However, the psychological paralysis that had afflicted him ever since he had lost the Invercald still held him in his thrall. Judging by what he told journalists later, all he apparently remembered of this interval was that they remained several months at Port Ross, sleeping under the trunks of trees like wild beasts, and subsisting on limpets or other shellfish, which was so far from the truth that it seems possible he had totally lost his grip on reality. End quote. Very well could have, because that's just not true. No. <laughs> did not sleep under trees like wild beasts. Nope. Also did not subsist just on limpets and other shellfish. You ate seals and birds and a lot of other stuff and cabbage. It's probably like less questions. I'll give you very blanket statements. He is, yeah, he's, he's a goner. Andrew Smith did take some initiative and built a raft, which the men promptly lost out at sea, and then settled back into their new home, losing strength each day as they ran out of food once again. Robert Holding went out to explore on his own, but instead of heading south, where he may have run into the crew of the Grafton, he explored to the north, attempting to get to the northern tip of the island. 
And that's not really a dig to Robert Holding. It's just he had no idea that there was other people there. So right. There's if, no way he could have. Yeah. He probably thought there's no way that God would do this more than once. Mm -hmm. In the same year. Right. And <laughs> like going to the south, you have to go over all of those hilly mountainous areas. So why would you do that when you could just go to the north and the beach? Right. And I do really encourage, like we have mentioned the terrain quite a lot. Like just really quick, like Google search, like the Eckland Island, and just take a look at what they were dealing with, like where they were camped out at Port Ross. Like I'm looking at the picture right now, insane terrain, like how they were able to scale it. So like they weren't just trying to get over a hill; they were scaling huge cliffs, yeah, covered with trees. It's it's insane. But speaking of the crew of the Grafton, the five men were slowly running low on their stores of food as well. In addition to their hunting parties, Musgrave and Raynal attempted to find a spot to set up a lookout station to look for passing ships, but instead of finding one, they almost lost their boat. The only thing that they had to traverse the islands, pretty much. Yeah. Lucky for them, the boat wasn't lost, and Alec was able to hunt a seal while they were gone. But by the end of July, the group was reduced to eating salted meat that had turned rancid and was nearly inedible. So they're struggling now, too. I mean, once winter rolls in, all of the seals go out to sea, so they don't have the same food stores that they used to. Also never knew that seals went out to sea during the winter, so here we are. It gets warmer in the water than it does on land. Oh, so, yeah. they, yeah, they just kind of hang out in the water. And then they'll come on land, like, occasionally. But Interesting. Yep. I learned a lot about seals from this book <laughs> yeah that's sealessly interesting uh, uh, we haven't had one of those in a while <laughs> i when i was doing all my sealing research to try and like figure out how this all went down and stuff i was looking into like how like sealing parties actually did their work but a lot of it was just talking about the economics of it no I was like oh this is boring man that sounds i want to hear about how they killed them right that sounds very sealy tell me about how we raped the earth for its resources oh, <laughs> that's less sealy yeah. <laughs> after failed hunt after failed hunt the men began to fall into depression and decided they would just go to bed early to make up for the lack of dinner oh it's the college routine where if you're hungry, you sleep. You drink more water and you go to bed. Yep. Finally, Alec returned late from a hunt and was carrying more than 100 pounds of seal meat on his own through the snow. Dude, this man is a champ. He like is, we talked about a lot in episode one, but he is just the man. A man. literal Viking. Raynal and George Harris were able to hunt a seal as well, salting and hanging the meat in their cabin to preserve it as long as they could. And as July came to an end, the men thanked God for providing for them once again. Meanwhile, at the north end of the island, Holding was out on his expedition to find a more suitable place to camp. He glimpsed an island 500 yards off the north point of Port Ross that looked suitable, and he decided to camp on the beach for a few days on his own while he thought of a way to get there. However, eventually an urge sent him back to Hardwick, not sure what he was going to find upon his return. What awaited him was a grim discovery. While he was gone, three of the men, including the two shipboys named Little and Lansfield, had died. You, they might be boys. Not that you say that. <laughs> if you call him little, I yeah. think he might be a boy. All of the men huddled together around the fire, which had now sunken into the ground, and the fireplace around it had collapsed. 
Luckily for them, though, the peat beneath the fire actually was flammable, but the men had been so unmotivated and despondent that they had barely gone out to hunt. The second mate had made the ship boys go out and fetch him food instead of getting it himself, which Holding scolded him for, saying that he was a contributing factor in their early deaths. Two of the men were unaccounted for, having gone out days before and not returned. So, it's not the best situation that he comes back to. Oh, no. Dad goes away for a little bit and things fall apart. Yeah, so there was ten, he returns, now there's seven, and two of the guys are missing. Yes. Realizing that all of them were bound for death if they didn't do anything, Holding once again attempted to persuade them to go to the northern shore, where he had found an abundance of shellfish to subsist on. All of them rejected this offer. (laughs) All, aside from Andrew Smith, the first mate. So the two men began their trek north, finding the two unaccounted-for men on the way there. All four of them took the beach, finding only finding not only a good haul of shellfish, but also a large seal that they managed to kill with a rock. Just the one seal who's probably also lost. Yeah, exactly. Also lost on his way. He's the ship boy of the seal. Oh, God. (laughs) They cut up the seal meat and began to haul it off to Holding's previous camping spot, with three of them taking large hunks of meat and one one of them taking the head, liver, and skin. But as they went, Holding and Smith realized that one of their number wasn't following. Turning around, they realized that the man, called Fritz, was crouched down, eating the raw liver like an animal. The other three men decided to go on without him, and he didn't arrive at camp until nightfall, without the seal head or the skin. Holding went back the next day to find that birds had already scavenged the meat that they were hoping to use for themselves. But that was to be the first of their sorrows. Zoinks. Like looking back and he's just like (laughs) on a liver. But it's it is very interesting in cases like this where it seems like humans just have an innate sense to go for the liver and like organs like that because they're so much more rich in nutrients than all of the other parts of the body. And it seems like in all of the circumstances that something like this happens they immediately go for those parts. So I don't know if it's just something in the human brain, like part of our animal brain that tells us, hey, eat this part. But I would say when you're choosing your options in the human insides buffet that they're enjoying, you look at the heart and you're like, it's a little too personal. (laughs) You look at the large intestines. But if you eat their heart, you get their power. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think the liver has to be the most apt... This, that's a crazy sound bite. The liver has the most appetizing looking human yeah. organ. I mean, they're they're eating seal organs right now, so I right. mean, it's well, better, I mean, better like than just, humans, but right, yes, just yes. in general, yeah, yeah. No, I get you. So, <laughs> can imagine for, just sorry to interrupt. Can I imagine just like walking along, like do 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 do, and you look back, and one of our buddies is just <laughs> make sure to bring the skin and the head along too, <laughs> and then and he does it, yeah. So Fritz, once he returned to camp, awoke in the middle of the night, claiming that he heard someone ask for water. Ignoring all of the men who had told him to go back to bed, Fritz went to go fill his tin cup with water and returned to the wigwam shelter that he was sharing with one of the other sailors. But instead of letting him inside, the sailor pushed Fritz out. Fritz then managed to fall face first onto the ground and didn't get up. The next morning, Holding and Smith found that he was dead. 
Now they were down to five people. <laughs> That's like stay out of my room. <laughs> yeah, hands up or five or six people. Yeah, right. Is it just like does he say why he doesn't let him back in? Like he's just, like Fritz is. He just has the. I don't, if, that's crazy. Don't know. It wasn't wasn't Smith or Holding. It was the other guy that mm-hmm. was with them. The other the third guy. But yeah, he just didn't get up. They couldn't bury Fritz in the frozen ground, so instead they pushed him over by a tree and covered him with some branches and left him. A few days later, Holding and Smith sent that third man back to camp at Hardwick to fetch the captain and the other survivors. And after he had left, they found that the sailor had been eating Fritz. Oh, oh my god. Lots of, uh, yeah. Just in the middle of the night, he's moving all the leaves and branches. He gets the munchies in the middle of the night. Oh, so crazy, man. So, when nobody came back after four days, Holding left Smith in charge of the camp and returned by himself to Hardwick to find out what happened to the cannibal man. When he arrived, he found the second mate named Mahoney along with the captain. Upon asking for the other men, they told him that the carpenter that was living with them had collapsed on the beach and the man that Holding had sent back to them had died. Holding went out and actually found the carpenter still alive but barely clinging to life on the beach, but he was beyond help and was soon thereafter washed out to sea and Holding kind of realized it's going to take more of my energy than I have to give to save this man. Yeah, I mean, they have no medical supplies, like they have nothing to combat anything if they even get a cut that turns into affection and they're dead that's why it's crazy that holding survived and kept his fingers because none of them got infected somehow you just have to have a certain amount of luck in a lot of these stories so the only thing left for holding was to convince captain delgarno and second mate mahoney to accompany him back to their camp so for reference it's four now four yes so it's Captain Delgarno, first mate Andrew Smith, second mate James Mahoney, and Robert Holding. Got it. Neither of them would accompany him back to camp. <laughs> the stubborn... Well, this is a month then. Uh, probably, yeah, like a little over a month now. A little over a month. I mean, if they haven't been like, get up and get after it, fellas, when they first got there, I can't imagine what their attitude and their disposition is a month into this. But the captain has to do something. Like, oh, you right. have to realize that you're the one that has to take charge. Mm-hmm. And in this case, he just does not. No. Holding returned back to camp alone with some new materials and made a hooked fishing spear out of them. Ended up catching the occasional fish, but otherwise continued to survive on limpets and roots with Andrew Smith. Eventually, the captain did join Smith and Holding, saying that Mahoney would join them once his leg healed from all of the boils that it had been afflicted with. After days of surviving on their meager diets and watching for ships, Holding got curious and returned to Hardwick to check on Mahoney. Unfortunately, he found the second mate dead. So dead that his body had been clearly decomposing for quite some time. Holding then etched the man's name into a roof tile along with the date of the wreck of the Invercald, which had just passed its three-month anniversary. So it was longer than a month, I guess. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So they had been hanging out at Hardwick for a while. But it is interesting to me in this case, I didn't put this in my notes, but like Mahoney had threatened to stab Holding. 
because he was like trying to blame him for the bo- ship boys dying. Right. And hold, holding like picked up a rock and was like, let's do this. Yeah, and then let's... Mahoney just went and laid down and that's where he ended up dying. So I'm, I'm kind it was kind of amazing to me that holding still had the common decency to like give him a memorial. Right. I mean, the other guy probably just stood up and it's like, whoa, that took all, all of my energy. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Going back to bed. As July turned to August back at a pigwayite, the men found themselves in a relatively comfortable position for once. They had recently killed a few seals, and Royal Tom, who is the big father seal that we talked about in the first episode, had even returned to the nearby breeding grounds, which was a good omen for the Grafton crew. This meant that they might be blessed by an abundance of seals soon, so maybe they'll have some food. They're just singing some background music yeah. <laughs> like that day's marvin gay <laughs> in good spirits musgrave even found that the grafton herself was still in the same shape as before and had held up well despite being wrecked on the rocks with this in mind he returned and propositioned the other men with the idea that they should flip the grafton and see if her bottom side was fixable the crew cleared all the rocks out of the way in the in the water and took the major weight out of the hold, like all of the sandstone and stuff, and set up a pulley system to try and flip the boat enough that they could see the other side. When they were able to flip it, their hopes were immediately shattered. The hull had a huge hole in it, and the wood was splintered all the way down the side. So, at this point, the men fell into another depression, but continued on with their daily routines. September reared its head as the final days of August passed, and the men were horrified to find that the seals had once again disappeared completely. The weather barely allowed them to launch the boat, and by the end of the month, Musgrave passed his 10-year wedding anniversary. Just another reminder of not being home. That sucks. Like, that's the psychological impact that will really get you. Like, yes, it does suck to see a huge hole in the boat, but knowing that you're missing so much at home while you're struggling, the people back home are also wondering, like, where are you? Like, it's all in all a very tough situation yeah. psychologically. And it's September. I mean, yeah. it's coming to the end of winter for that, which is lucky for them. But it's also coming up on November, which was their original date of leaving Sydney. Yeah. So it's almost a year now since they haven't been home. The men took the boat out once again for a hunt in the harbor and finally found a seal. However. To their dismay, once they came up on the seal, they found that it was Royal Tom. And if you remember in the first episode, they kind of had like a mutual agreement with Royal Tom on the island that he was on, that they wouldn't bug him, that they would kind of take from the outskirts and Mm -hmm. he would mind their own business. Because Royal Tom was a mammoth. He was a big boy. And he also had two female seals with him. So Royal Tom was a player. Wow. The men weighed their options, and unfortunately for Royal Tom and his wives, the scales were against them. Starvation was held off once again for the men at Epigwaite. Once October rolled around, it was time to celebrate the ninth month that they had been stranded on the Auckland Islands. Double rations of tobacco that day. (laughs) More beer from Roots. Yeah. In Port Ross, Holding and his two officers spent October living completely separate existences. After returning to Delgarno and Smith with the news that Mahoney had died, all of them fell into a deep depression. Holding was the only one who had participated in hunting food, so he decided that he would fend for himself. 
Delgarno and Smith fell into the belief that the officers shouldn't be taking orders from a simple sailor, so they set up their own camp about 60 yards away. Oh my god, that's so petty. It is. The only time they would come together was when Holding had a big catch of seal or fish, which he knew would go bad anyways, so he ended up sharing it with his stubborn companions. God, that's so crazy. This guy, like, he, and at the end, he never gets credit for it, mm-hmm. but yeah, he is the only reason that these two survives, but like, he would have probably been okay on his own, Yeah, but yeah, it's kind of crazy that he still accommodates them. He really is a saint. <laughs> Holding set up his own shelter, cursing Delgarno and Smith for not taking his advice to create themselves a more sturdy shelter when they had originally wrecked on the island. Because he kind of knew, like, if we can build something that actually protects us from the weather, our odds of dying go down quite a bit. People forget, you have to be inside, like, 85% of the time. Exposure is the biggest thing here for them. The end of October brought about the changing of the weather as spring arrived. This didn't mean a lot because it was still cold and the skies were still full of storms, but it was better than the nonstop gales of winter. The men at Epigwaiit found their pantry empty once again. However, they were able to find one young seal preparing to swim away, which Raynal was lucky enough to shoot straight through the head and killed it immediately. <laughs> hey, plus 50, well <laughs> Sharp done. Sharpshooter. Yeah. Once they had one, their luck kind of turned. November brought about the return of the seals as the pupping season began, and with them, the eve of summer came as well. However, the men also knew that summer meant that the deadline for Uncle Musgrave and Charles Sarpy's rescue mission was kind of come and gone, and their hopes for a ship began to dwindle. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. His uncle (laughs) just did not follow up on that deal. Nope. As the last month of the year approached, Holding realized that he and his captain and first mate needed to work together to continue surviving on the northern end of the island. So he approached them with the idea to build a raft to float across the 500-yard channel to the island that he had observed before. Luckily for him, Delgarno and Smith were actually eager to listen for once. They found some suitable reeds that worked as a sort of a large wicker basket, which they supplemented with some, se- some of the seal skins that they had saved, and they created a small raft. Holding offered to take it on its maiden voyage, which almost resulted in his demise when the tides nearly carried him out to sea. Oh, God. (laughs) Luckily for him, he was able to get back to the shore and reset. Eventually, he went back out again with a new oar to keep him on track, and he made it to the island. There, he found that rabbits had eaten most of the edible plants, but he was able to kill a seal pup and returned to the other two with the suggestion that they move their camp to the island. They agreed, but they also agreed that they needed a larger craft to get all three of them over to the island. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) For this, they returned back to Hardwick and salvaged the former settlement for wood planks to build a boat. Delgarno and Smith were finally forced to face Mahoney's dead body, and they decided they would work around him instead of burying him because the ground's still too hard. (laughs) And they just don't want to touch him. Because gross. Eventually, they built a suitable boat, and Holding told them to test it out by making a trip from their campsite back to Hardwick to recover more planks to build an extra raft. The two men didn't return for a full day, and when they did, they returned without a raft or a boat. Assholes. 
When Holding asked, they said they had tied up the raft and brought the boat ashore because the raft had gotten caught up in some weeds. But when Holding went to go check on them, both the boat and the raft were gone, carried out to sea. These two are just unbelievable bummers. (laughs) They are. Luckily for the three men, there was still enough wood left at Hardwick to build another boat, which they said was constructed better than the first using the experience that they had gained from their initial attempts. Well, there you go. They at least learned something. (laughs) A little silver lining. There is no such thing as failure. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there is. (laughs) (laughs) It's this. (laughs) By December, they were ready to move to Rabbit Island. With December arriving, the weather was beginning to be much more advantageous, and dozens of seals were constantly populating the islands and the shores on the southern part of the island near Epigwaite. And I'm going to be kind of jumping back and forth, if you haven't noticed. It's kind of how the book does it, because we have journal entries that kind of jump time, so Mm -hmm. it's easier to follow if we kind of jump around. But just know that going forward, we're not going to be continuously with the same group. Without need to desperately hunt for food, the crew of the Grafton were focused on the fact that no ships had come, and too much time had passed for it to be reasonable that New South Wales was working to help them. (laughs) Musgrave's hopelessness began to rear its head again, basically resigning himself to either die on the island or attempt to return to the mainland in their small boat alone, which he believed was better than just waiting to die on the island. That's not fair, or excuse me, that is a pretty fair mindset to have when you're gloomy because it's been a full year and they haven't seen a boat like any boats but everyone was basically like if you go by yourself you're gonna die you're got you're done and that's our only way of getting around the island so we're outvoting you on that yeah you're not taking this boat anywhere Raynal knew that the men needed to focus on work to keep the vibes high so he sent musgrave to work on the lookout post to keep himself busy Meanwhile, Reynal was finally able to work on making the men quality shoes. He had cleaned and prepped seal skins to make them into leather that had been kind of curing for a while, and it was finally ready to be used. So he and the men crafted cobbler's tools out of wood, and Reynal was able to craft the men high-quality footwear to replace their wooden clogs. Hey, I forgot that they were clogging around. They weren't for a while, but now they were. <laughs> As Musgrave put it, quote, Reynal proved himself a skillful shoemaker, although he had no previous experience, end quote. He's just a crafty fella. I don't understand how he knows how to do this. It's, some people just can. I mean, like he just ma- can. Like yeah. He's like, oh, okay, we need a shoehorn. We need a bunch of pegs to stretch the leather out. Mm-hmm. We need all this stuff to make shoelaces. I'm like, how? <laughs> what size are you? Yeah. Literally whatever. But he's like everyone said like they were high quality shoes. Like they weren't fancy shoes, but yeah. they were high quality shoes. <laughs> Gonna be tough to boogie, but But it's better than walking around on wet rocks on the shore in clogs. <laughs> oh my god. So yeah. The elation of this success was soon squashed though, because Christmas rolled around, and it was but another reminder to the crew of the Grafton of their distance from any celebrations. They couldn't celebrate with family and friends, and they were instead forced to sit with one another in silence as they all longed for home. But Raynal, once again, forced the men to break this melancholy by exclaiming that they were going to sail to New Zealand. Oh. Yeah. That's the plan. I don't... Okay. (laughs) I would probably hear that and and say, remember when you almost lost our boat? (laughs) True. (laughs) 
When they asked him how this was going to be possible with their weak, small dinghy, he said they would build a new, more sturdy boat. All right, let's get crooking. They cast his ideas down immediately. Let's stay where we are. And eventually, Raynal rejected the idea as well because they didn't have the proper tools or equipment needed to build a better boat. Yeah, there's no way that you can build that just with what they had. I mean, you need a rudder. You need sails. You need so much. Yeah, you need nails to put everything together. Right. You need to make it waterproof. So, yeah, yeah. Like, so airtight that water cannot come in. Exactly. But instead of giving up completely, the Frenchman decided that he would begin on their journey to build this new boat on his own, and he hoped that this solo effort would spur the rest of the men to pursue the job along with him. So to start with, he knew that he needed tools. So guess what he did, Evan? He made them. He started building a forge. I love this man. That is so cool. (laughs) His first job was to build a bellows. And if you don't know what a bellows is, it's pretty much like that big accordion looking thing that blows mm-hmm. air into a fire. Yeah. He's like, we need one of those because that's kind of important. So now I'm going to read a passage to you from Island of the Lost that discusses this part of their adventure. So when I say he in this pa- these passages, I'm referring to Raynal. Then he set to work. First, he made three wooden panels out of narrow planks that he pegged together and caulked with tow, quote, which I procured from untwisted ropes, end quote. With his knife, he shaped these panels so that they were semicircular on one side and came to a point on the other. The middle plank, the longest, was fitted with a copper tube, which narrowed at the far end, which he rolled himself, joining the long edges by folding and doubling them over each other, quote, just as tin men do, end quote. Oh, of course. He enclosed the base of this tube with, quote, two little pieces of wood hollow in the middle, which, when brought close together, formed un sorte de virule, which I don't know what that means. Oh, a ferrule or collar. No, there we go. <laughs> quote, this I fastened with pegs to the extremity of the panels, end quote. The pointed sides of the two other panels were joined to this middle panel by hinges made of seal skin, so one panel was above the central one and the other below. Quote, in this way, he went on, they were movable, could rise or sink as wanted on the middle piece, which remained immovable when the bellows were fixed in their place between two posts erected in the rear of the fire. End quote. Holes were bored in the middle of the two panels and fitted with leather valves. Quote, finally, I completed this wonderful instrument by covering the sides with seal skin of a suitable shape nailed to the edges of each of the three panels. So he built a fully functioning bellows out of seal skin, wood, and leather. If I've said it once, I've said it a million times. <laughs> Seals are the MVP of the story. They really are. But I just, I don't know how he knows how to do all of this. It's just, yeah, truly mind-boggling. Looking at the things that are given to you, and one of them is seals, I don't understand how you create anything. Yeah. Or to let, like, let alone start to build yourself a forge to create metal tools. Yeah, this is step one for a forge. Yep. That's crazy. <laughs> Once the bellows was finished, the rest of the men excitedly joined Raynal in his efforts. <laughs> Which is kind of awesome. <laughs> and that, you have to feel like such, such a boss when you're like, you all doubted me. <laughs> Look what I could <laughs> Look do. Look at me now. Yeah. George and Henry took on the task of hunting for the group, reducing the hunting parties from all five of the men to just the two youngest. Alec spent most of the day every day making charcoal for the forge. 
He did this by piling wood and covering it with turf so that it would smolder, checking on it constantly to make sure that the fire hadn't been suffocated or been put out by moisture. But he worked diligently and was able to make handfuls of charcoal for Reynal to use as fuel. Musgrave, on his part, helped where he could, but his health, both physical and mental, were suffering at this point. He was constantly depressed, his hair had gone gray and was falling out, and he had a plague of boils. Oh yeah, I forgot the old plague of boils he's, on his like, leg. He's right? struggling a bit. Yeah. 1864 turned to 1865, and it had now been a year since they had been stranded on Auckland Island, and Musgrave stated in his journal that, quote, In all probability, another will at least pass before I get away, unless by some chance of sealers coming in the meantime. End quote. Do you think the sealers that would come would be pissed like, you guys took all the you seals. You took all the frickin' seals? <laughs> you made it into a, a frickin' fan? A frickin' and bellows? What are you making over there? <laughs> what are those, what's on your feet? The seals? <laughs> I like how they're all talking like d- dumb people from America. <laughs> I know. But eventually Musgrave was invested in helping Raynal and the others, and they built a shed with the copper sheeting from the hull of the Grafton, and a brickwork furnace was built inside of that shed. Alex's stock of charcoal was then moved inside, and on the morning of January 16th, the forge was set to work for the first time. Three weeks. They built a forge in three weeks. Out of nothing but determination and grit. Yep. <laughs> and seals. But determination and grit. And seals. Busgrave worked the bellows to keep the forge burning hot, and Raynell set to work immediately to make a set of pincers that would be used to handle the red-hot metals that they would be working with. Doesn't explain how he made the pincers out of the red-hot metal before they had pincers. Where are they getting the metal? From the ship. They're using, like, the iron scraps from the ship. I always forget that their ship is still, like... Yep, it's still there. Musgrave was... That's so, like, just the difference between the two situations. They have a forge. (laughs) They have a fully functioning forge and a cabin. Everyone out of the other crew is like, we finally agree to share a boat. Yeah. And the the captain lost the boat. Right. After 17 of us have died, we agree to move. Musgrave, on his part, was strangely encouraging for once when Raynal was struggling, and by the end of January, three pairs of pincers of different sizes, three punches, and a mold for nails, a pair of tongs, a chisel for cutting iron, a large hammer, and a stock of carpenter's tools had all been completed in the forge. That's so cool. They built the forge in three weeks, and the matter of two weeks after that, they had all of that. Again, that's... I can't even comprehend how to do that. Nope. No idea. The men began to dismantle the grafton and cut trees for curved planks to make up the framework of their new boat. But soon, Reynal realized the limits of his capabilities. He failed multiple times to forge an auger, which is a tool used to drill holes, and soon he realized that the sheer amount of nails, bolts, and pegs that they would need to manufacture to complete their work would take them no less than a year and a half to two years to finish what was necessary. Oh yeah, at least. So this was kind of them realizing that their last hope had kind of been dashed. (laughs) But it was a killer five-week ride when they made... The Forge and all the other tools. But, like, I've watched the show Forge and Fire where they make swords, mm-hmm. and I've, I don't know, 
I know like 10% of what I would need to know to even like begin to start forging. Right. But like there's a thing called twist Damascus, which is where you just like hammer a bunch of metal together and then you twist it and then it makes a really cool pattern in the sword after you're done. Mm -hmm. But I assume that's kind of what he was trying to do here. And if you don't do it right, it just shatters the metal and breaks it. So it's like you got to really have an idea of how to do stuff like this. Right. Plus when you're starting off using rocks as hammers and stuff, it's, it's going to be tough to get get going. Right. And it's like a finite resource, too. You can't just keep on screwing up. Yeah, exactly. So as the five men of the Grafton worked away down south, the three in the north were getting situated on Rabbit Island. They created a sort of turf shelter using leftover boards and stones to make up the rest of the structure. In the end, it was about an eight by ten foot area comfortable enough to keep them somewhat safe from the elements. They were faced with constant hunger, though, as the seals had abandoned the island after the mating season and the rabbits there ate all the plants. They tried to kill the rabbits, but the rabbits proved too hard to catch. Oh, yeah, you're not catching a rabbit when you're malnourished. Yeah, they tried to build like a wedge to force it into a corner. But they were like, the rabbit would just jump over us or over the wedge and get out. So they just forgot that rabbits can It didn't jump. work. In the end... The birds came to be their best source of food, as once again, the animals didn't know that they should be wary of the humans. <laughs> They're like, what's up, pal? Stab. But with the birds' breeding season soon to be over, Holding knew that they would have to try and plant some food to stay alive. So by March, they had cleared a space for a garden in an attempt to sustain themselves that way. The end of March also saw the Grafton survivors refocusing their shipbuilding endeavors. Instead of building a whole new craft, they would strengthen and lengthen the dinghy that they did have. The plan was to attach a sturdier mast, fix the sails, raise the sides, and create a deck on board this dinghy that they had. The men got to work pretty quickly, because as April loomed, they knew that they only had a few more weeks before the seals would be gone again, and they needed to work as fast as possible if they were to succeed in their escape. Trees were felled and taken to the shore, which were then shaped and arranged into a shipbuilding yard. Wood from the wreck was attached to the dinghy to lengthen the keel of the boat, which the keel of the boat is kind of the spine of the boat, the bottom uh-huh. spine of the boat. The men worked from dawn to dusk, braving these swarms of sandflies, only ceasing their work to sleep or if it was too stormy out. And this is kind of where they get to the point where the sandflies make them so bloated that they're like, we couldn't poke a single piece of our skin with a pin without hitting somewhere that they had bitten. Oh. That's how bad it was. God, that's And they're terrible. just like swelled because they're working so hard. Yeah. They're dehydrated. But even then, Raynal continued in the forge and Musgrave stitched the canvas that they needed to make sails. By the end of March, the new framework was already being attached to the stern of the boat with iron strips binding the new framework to the old one. The sides of the boat were raised by two feet, and work was going well, but by the end of March, more sour weather was coming. The, new, the men wanted to shove off their new craft in April because that was when the weather would be the best, but it was proving to be too tight of a deadline. They were growing hungry as well, with the seals as scarce as ever before, and now there's only two of them hunting versus all of them. Mm-hmm. Eventually, they did find some food, but the weather was now shifting back to winter, and the work on the boat slowed as May approached. However, one good thing did come their way, as a young domestic cat was caught in one of their traps, and they kept it as a pet. A cat? Yeah, what? I don't know where this cat comes We're from. We're 
what? <laughs> I don't know if maybe it was on the Invercal and it mm-hmm. survived the wreck because there was a dog that like was apparently on board and survived, or if maybe it was like from the Hardwick or something. Maybe, but yeah. that was like two decades ago, so I have no freaking idea. That's crazy. This is the first mention of anything but like a bird or pigs yeah. and seals. It could have been like another shipwreck, like group two that right, just right. left a cat there. But the cat enjoyed being pet and played with and even helped to keep the house clear of mice, which helped the men out a lot. Right. By the middle of April, the men were working tirelessly to get all they needed to, for their boat done. Raynal worked the forge, making 53-inch long square nails each day, sometimes working until after midnight to ensure that they met their quota for the day. At the end, Musgrave estimated that the boat would have around 700 nails and spikes in her, and if they kept that 50-per-day quota, it would take a full two weeks to just make the nails. (laughs) That's so much. That's so many nails. Yeah. By the time it was May, and thus the 16th month of their stay on the islands, they finally completed all of the nails and bolts they would need. But now it was a prayer as to whether they could complete the work as the weather turned. Even if they could finish the boat, the question remained as to whether it would be sturdy enough to make the nearly 300-mile or nearly nearly 500-kilometer journey to New Zealand. They thought this was their only hope of getting back home, but on the north end of the island, the survivors of the Invercald were about to come across their own saving grace. Food was running low on Rabbit Island, as the birds had left for their breeding season and the seals were mostly gone as well. The men went out on their boat to hunt for shellfish to survive at this point, and as Holding was out on one of these hunts, he realized that one of the nearby islands might be better suited for them to go shelter there. He suggested this to Delgarno and Smith, and they both agreed that they should try it out. So the three men set about cutting timbers on Rabbit Island to create a shelter for this new island. But as Holding moved inland to find good trees, his work was interrupted permanently. It was May 22, 1865, a year and 12 days since the wreck of their ship. It was also the day that they were going to meet their saviors. Holding had broken his adze, which, as we mentioned in the first episode, is kind of like a hatchet, just turn the blade sideways. And he was heading back to their sod shelter to fix it when he alerted. He was alerted by Delgarno screaming on the beach. No, <laughs> he thought their shelter was on fire, not for the first time, but instead the captain had spotted a ship. By the time Holding and Smith got back to him, the ship had passed out of sight. But in short order, Delgarno was proved right. A ship skirted around the point of the channel, and the men ran a blue shirt up a tall stick as a flag and built a large fire with the greenest branches they could in order to make large clouds of smoke to make the ship aware that they were there. Mm -hmm. It took time, but eventually the three men heard a gunshot and saw a boat lowered from the ship and was approaching their position. As it got closer, Delgarno regained his captain sense for the first time in the story. Friggin' a-hole. Ordering Holding (laughs) to keep his mouth shut and let him do the talking. I hate this guy. (laughs) That order didn't mean much, though, since the crew of the boat that arrived were Spanish and didn't speak much English. Perfect. But Delgarno, Smith, and Holding learned that the ship out at sea was the Julian, a ship under either Spanish or Portuguese command, sailing from China to South America. A plague was raging on board the ship, No, but the three men had no second thoughts about wanting to get on board. Yeah, 
between plague or you want to try another another year on Rabbit Island. Yeah, you want to try that other island next door? Yeah. Delgarno told a delusional version of the events when he recounted this story, claiming that the survivors on the on Rabbit Island had chased the Julian in their boat and were eventually spotted and picked up. But the likely story is that the one that Holding and Smith told, which saw the small boat come ashore on Rabbit Island, where the three castaways had to shelter their rescuers because it was too late in the day to go back to the Julian. The crew of the Julian were literally jumping with fleas, but they brought a gun with them, which Holding loaded with pebbles to shoot three rabbits the next morning. Because <laughs> they, did, they didn't bring, they brought a gun with no ammo. Oh my God. So he's like, all right, I guess I'll throw rocks in it. Right. All of them then loaded the castaways' preserved seal skins onto the small boat and found the Julian once again. The three men got new clothes, and Delgarno and Smith were entertained by the ship's captain while, quote, the stubbornly insubordinate Holden was relegated to his proper station, end quote. The Julian then refreshed its freshwater stocks on the island and sailed to South America without looking for any other survivors. That makes me so upset. <laughs> like, that's literally, like, that makes me more upset than any show I've ever seen. <laughs> that these scumbags get rescued? Yeah, well, no, that the two, well, yes, but, like, that the two were the worst during the entire time that they were there, get entertained by the captain, like, get new things, and my boy holding, it's like, oh, go back to your, like, deckhand. Yep. Like, that sucks. I know. These guys kind of suck. <laughs> Especially Delgarno is probably the worst person out of the survivors of either side of the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's kind of a, a big dick. Meanwhile, as if fate was truly against them, the men at Epigwaite had no luck being rescued. Rather, they had to continue through the harsh winter to build their own rescue boat. They were so busy that they were gaps of a couple months long in Musgrave's journal entries at this point. So oh, wow. that gets pretty scarce on like details of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of what I find fascinating about this story is that there's such long periods of just such mundane things. It's all like daily routine, going through the same things. But then it's punctuated by all of these moments of just like sheer adrenaline. It's kind of like, it's insane. It makes it so much more exhilarating when they finally get to a point of like something super exciting. It's very interesting that survival really is mundane. If you think about it, it is. now, like we have literally, I've never thought or have had a single thought about surviving or where food is coming from. It's like, it's mundane. It is, which is a weird thing to say when it's like, these guys are struggling for their lives. Right. But at the same time, it's like, they've been here for a year. They're doing the same thing pretty much day in and day out. Hunt, fell some trees for firewood, maybe go out and like do some exploring. Make some nails, pet the cat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now they have a cat at least. So yeah. it's exciting. That was probably the longest journal entry. Like the cat has brown eyes. Its name is Tinkles. <laughs> I know. I wish they would have said the name of the cat, but they never did. They said, like, we put a collar on it and tied it up inside of the house. And then once that broke, the cat just kind of hung out. So we I kept it that. as a pet. I love that. Between running the forge, hunting for what scarce food they can find, and felling trees to use for their boat, nobody was sitting around during that two months, though. Their saw needed to be sharpened every half hour. The forge was running until around one in the morning on some nights. And then, to make matters worse, the group fell victim to a bout of dysentery. <laughs> oh, 
No, it always rears its uh, ugly head. Never leaves. Even on a secluded island, dysentery will get you. They all made it through, though. They were all okay. But Musgrave did say like he had lingering aches and pains from it afterwards. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, the work continued on. Subsisting now mainly on roots and whatever oddball seals they could find to kill meant that the work was becoming even more burdensome as they had less and less energy. But finally, at the end of June, the boat was finished. They repurposed parts of the grafton to make a mast, made a handrail out of metal rings and rope, and cut out three square hatches in the deck which the men could stand waist high in and then secure the rest of their torso in canvas to help secure them in place when they sailed. June 27th was the first time the boat was launched into the water, and she was christened with the name Rescue. Hey, ooh. Kind of on point. Yes, but like, <laughs> are they just jinxing it? It is very, <laughs> but like, as I read that part where they made hatches in it, it's basically mm. like them standing in a hole up to their waist, and then they pull a canvas sheet around themselves and tie it tight oh yeah so it's like very funny to imagine just their heads out yeah but yeah it like it kept them secured on the deck for when they would sail and Mm -hmm. kept them warm out of the water for the most part but once the rescue was first in the water they added the ballast they used the iron from the grafton and secured it with the intention that all five of them would sail to new zealand together all of them hopped on and took the boat for its first test drive The men quickly realized that all five of them on board meant that the slightest shifting of their weight sent the boat bobbing one way or another. No. (laughs) So it took them all day to go just seven miles to their destination, where they got trapped for two weeks by the weather. So they basically went to this little cove off of the the coast a little bit to test out the boat, and Mm -hmm. then a storm hit, and they're like, well. Oh, yeah. Now (laughs) we're stuck here for two weeks, I guess. Oh, my gosh. So they're tenting it. Yeah, it's they <laughs> well they just needed like some away time from home, I guess. you know, <laughs> from Pig Quiet. On July 11th, Musgrave readjusted the ballast and the rigging on the boat, but soon came to the realization that it would be suicide if all 5 of them went on the trip. In his words, Musgrave said, quote, "I proposed that two should remain on the island whilst I and two others tried to reach New Zealand when if I arrived safe, of which I had very grave doubts, I would immediately find some means of sending for those who remained, end quote. It's a hefty promise. Naturally, the men didn't like this idea. No. However, Henry Forget admitted that he wasn't too keen on going almost 300 miles in what he referred to as a nutshell. <laughs> and there's no way to tell where you're going, really. Right. I mean, they still had the tools they had from the graft and like the ship the navigation tools oh sure. so they did have that eventually on july 13th musgrave made the executive decision that henry forget and george harris would stay behind together on the island since they got along well while musgrave Reynal, and alec went to go get help and thus on july 19th the men prepared to part ways once again quoting from island of the lost the goodbyes were heartfelt The five men had been comrades for the past 20 months. Since November 12, 1863, the day they had departed from Sydney, they had shared the same sufferings and struggles. They had worked in close brotherhood for the good of all of them. Because of the conscientious leadership, resourceful technology, unstinting hard work, and an outstanding spirit of camaraderie, they had survived unimaginable privations. Now, one way or another, the strange adventure was over. End quote. 
I can't imagine being the two people left there, though. Right. And just seeing, like, your buddies go off into the distance. But it, it's got to be such a split emotion, because you're like, A, our options are either A, they do get help and we get rescued, or, like, if they get here in time, we get rescued. Right. Or B, they don't make it there, they die, and then we're stuck here without a boat and forever. Probably gonna die. Yeah. So it's like they're your only hope at this point. After one year, six months, and 16 days on the Auckland Islands, the castaways were finally leaving. Well, some of them were leaving. Yes, a majority. By 11 in the morning on July 19th, the rescue was heading out of Carnley Harbor and out to open seas. By 3 in the afternoon, they had already passed the reefs and were leaving the northern end of the islands behind. On their current trajectory, Raynal estimated that it should take no more than 50 to 60 hours to reach land. Aside from someone having to constantly pump water out of the boat, she performed valiantly, a lot better than they thought she would. I can't believe that works. (laughs) But then, as the sky is wont to do, it formed into what Musgrave called a hurricane. It's always a hurricane. They say hurricane a lot when they're talking about sailings. I don't know if it's like a legitimate hurricane or if it's just like a really big storm. I'm assuming it's just a really big storm, but either way. The waves crashed upon the boat, spinning her around and around, but the ballast held her upright. The next four days were a constant struggle because it stormed the entire time. Yeah. During the storm, the men couldn't eat. They were too focused on making sure the ship survived. They had to focus on working the pump, the rudder, and the sails. Their hands and faces were burnt by the wind and the salt, and they were completely drenched. But on the fifth morning of their journey, they finally spotted Stewart Island, the southernmost and smallest of the three islands of New Zealand. But in the home stretch was where they had to fight the most. Musgrave was on the verge of collapse from having not eaten for five days. Raynal had a brief moment of joy, but soon fell back into the grinding survival mode. The sea had calmed a bit and the wind had died down, but with no wind, that meant they had to row there and they had no strength to use the oars that they had to reach the shore. Eventually, a wind did begin to push them in, luckily for them. But it was too dark, and they had to spend another night out at sea. Oh my gosh. Finally, on the morning of July 24th, 1865, the rescue entered Port Adventure. Straining hard to continue working the rigging until they found people, the three ragged men finally came upon a Maori fishing village where a European man spotted them and a crowd helped them out of the boat and into the village. They were taken to the European man's home, finding out his name was Captain Tom Cross, who had married a Maori woman and settled there working as a go-between for trading, as well as the captain of a 15-ton cutter known as Flying Scud. Thank goodness they found a captain. Right? But they finally made it. I can't imagine, like, the joy like that's just pure joy yeah there's i've never had we found other people joy (laughs) right (laughs) and raynal said if they had to spend another night out there they might not have made it well yeah i mean none of none of them have eaten i'm sure all their food that they had on board with them is also gone like spoiled it is yeah because i mean a hurricane (laughs) yeah (laughs) and they're like 
battling icy waters. Like this is the middle of winter. Yeah. So it's not like warm. <laughs> no, not by any means. Tom Cross's wife made the men a meal, which they voraciously ate scarce parts of because their shrunken stomachs wouldn't allow them to eat a lot. For the best, because then they would have died in the yeah overeating in one of the worst ways. Afterwards, the men fell into a 24-hour sleep. When Reynal awoke, he found that he was back on a ship <laughs> next to his comrades who were also sleeping. Oh, no. <laughs> Can you imagine that? You finally get to land and you wake, you like get a full rest for the first time in over a year, probably. Yeah. And then you wake up and you're back, back on, on the road. boat. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, so when he awoke, they all awoke and they went to the deck to find that they were aboard the Flying Scud. Captain Cross gave the men more food and they actually ate it this time. And he told them that he was heading into port at Invercargill. Invercargill? In yes. vertigo. Where he would take them to a doctor and also make arrangements to send for the other two survivors on Auckland Island. As they entered port, the men watched as the rescue, which was being towed behind the flying scud, broke its tow rope and was dashed upon the rocks and was broken to pieces. No, that would have been such a cool piece of history to have. The three men uh, said that they cried upon seeing their savior, which they had labored on for months, gone in an instant. I don't blame them. But it had done its job, so at least it's that. It's almost fitting that, like, of course. Like, there's just one more little F you. Yeah, right, exactly. But the task at hand was too important. Once in town, they were taken to one of the first shops they saw where they met a businessman named John, McPher- named John McPherson, who offered to help them immediately. He took them to the customs office, but the government officials said that they couldn't do anything to help. McPherson then set about taking the men back to his house, feeding them, and then going into town to ask those living there to contribute to Musgrave, Raynal, and Alec. The people of Invercargill were very generous, many of them understanding the survivor's ordeal, having been sailors or mariners at one point themselves. A local lodging house called the Princess's Hotel offered the men free room and board. <laughs> I do love that the community, like, it has to be a sailing community that they end up in because any other one i think would just be like well that kind of sucks right yeah other than this one we're like we get it these people are very eager to help mm-hmm. to say the least because over 100 pounds was jet was raised for the men as well along with clothing and blankets and as thankful as the men were they were also frustrated because the government was doing nothing to help them save their friends yeah and they never got an answer as to why. They just said, like, the government, for some political reason, was saying no. After McPherson had collected enough funds to cover the cost of sending a ship to Carnley Harbor, a public meeting was held to figure out which ship would be used. After none of the schooners that were expected to show up to port showed up, it was decided that although the Flying Scud was small, she was sturdy and well-captained, and along with Musgrave's help piloting, she would make a perfect rescue vessel. Musgrave, for his part, desperately wanted to go home and see his family. Yeah, he's probably so sick of... He doesn't want to... None of them want to even look at that island. They don't want to go in the... They don't want to go south. Like, he, I, I would never want to go back to that place where they just experienced so much trauma. 
and then see it again. Right. There aren't good memories there. But this is where Musgrave really sh- becomes a hero in the story. Because after spending some time thinking it over, he decides to go save his friends. The Flying Scud was then loaded and prepared for her voyage. And on July 29th, only five days after they had arrived back on Stewart Island, she set sail to Auckland Island. Flying Scud left Invercargill at 5 p.m., making it about six miles downstream before having to anchor for the night to wait for the tides to change so that they can make it safely out to open sea. As they made their way the next day, the wind pushed them towards where they had come from, so they stopped back in Port Adventure, and they got stuck there for a week. And then once they set off again, they got hit by a storm and got lost thanks to a faulty compass. The crew then had to go back to town to find a good compass, and when they finally did, they were hit by another storm. Can we chill on the storm for five (laughs) seconds? Musgrave was then beginning to get frustrated at how long this ship trip was becoming, and he started to doubt whether he had actually made the right decision. Oh, the survivor's guilt, I'm sure, is piling on at this point. But finally, on August 22nd, almost a month after they had left Invercargill and 35 days since leaving George and Henry, Musgrave recorded that they were back at sea and should be finally reaching Auckland Islands soon. (laughs) Oh my god, they're like, please, you don't understand, we might need to haste up the timeline, it's been a month. We've been sitting at Port Adventure for a month which also sounds just like an arcade on a beach port adventure yeah (laughs) (laughs) but after recording this in his journal the next day the crew did spot the northern islands of the auckland islands group upon sailing along the coast of the island group the men noticed smoke coming from the northern part of auckland island which if you'll remember the three survivors had already been rescued at this point so no idea where that's coming from And Mm. these guys don't even know that there was other survivors there. So they're all like, I don't know. So Musgrave noted it, but he was much more eager to get to his friends. So they moved south to Camp Cove, which was where they had taken the rescue on her first test drive. The men eventually took the boat from the Flying Scud inland and arrived at Epigwaite, where Henry Forget greeted them white as a ghost right before collapsing. George, on his part, grabbed Musgrave's hands, and all he could say was, quote, Captain Musgrave, how are ye? How are ye? <laughs> End quote. And then he started crying. That's all he has to say. <laughs> how all, are ye? That's <laughs> all he said. How are ye? How are ye? I mean, I'd have the same. Like, you, there's no good line to drop in that He was situation. probably just shocked. Like, oh, I, I'll greet this man normally. Like, I, what do you I do there? I would not be able to believe it, yeah. Yeah. But... Yeah, Henry Forget, he's kind of in a rough spot. He's not doing well. And in the book, I was so confused for a while because there's George Harris and Henry Forget, mm-hmm. and she nicknames one of them Harry. And she, I don't think she ever says in the book which one it is, No, but it's Henry Forget. And I always thought it was George Harris. So they say like, they saw Harry go down and then George Harris came and said hi. I'm like, whoa. Wait a minute. Hold on. <laughs> but I figured it out eventually. But after they all greeted each other, Musgrave and Captain Cross quickly loaded these guys onto a boat, and they were just like, yeah, we we need to get you guys some food. (laughs) So they got them back to the Flying Scud, who wasn't able to anchor because the weather was so rough, so they kind of just had to take this little dinghy to find their bigger boat. 
But once they got on board, these men were given food and they began to relay their experiences to Musgrave as they ate. They told him that they struggled to find food after the rescue had left and eventually they were reduced to eating mice. Eventually, they made a raft out of casks, used that to hunt, but the two had almost split up because they began arguing with one another. Oh, and they were left there because they liked each yeah. other. No. So it just proves that any circumstance can prove to be a bad one if you right. are in dire straits. Well, I mean, like they took the boat that they used for hunting, so right. they made it exponentially harder to hunt. Yeah, they said they cut four casks like in half and just tied them together and used that as like a raft to go hunt. Yeah. But it's the middle of winter. There's no seals, so it didn't really matter. Mm-hmm. As they told their stories, the Flying Scud moved back up the coastline to go inspect that spot where they had seen the smoke come from. Musgrave decided that he wanted to help anyone who was in a similar situation to what they had endured, if he could. But upon making landfall, the search parties found nothing and nobody. Nobody aside from the decayed corpse of James Mahoney, that is, who is the second maid from the Invercald, still laying in the ruins of Hardwick. That's right, yeah. But since the news of the Invercald hadn't reached New Zealand yet, these men knew nothing about why he was there or who he was. After spending a short time to bury Mahoney and say some prayers for him, the men left the Auckland Islands to head home. They set sail the morning of September 13th and were back to Stewart Island by that night because they had favorable winds. Hey. So it took them almost 30 days to get there. <laughs> But, but one day to get back. That's so. I mean, if you look on the map too, it's really not that. It it's really really not that far from yeah. New Zealand. It's right there. I mean, it's it's a trip, but right. like in a capable boat that they actually had for the first time. Mm-hmm. It's not that hard. Two days later, they pulled back into Invercargill, where they were met by a sick but joyful Raynal, as well as Alec and the rest of the townspeople. Quickly, the townspeople arranged for these men to finally be sent back home. John McPherson's boat was in the port at the time, and he offered to send them back to Melbourne on board that. George Harris refused, deciding to stay in New Zealand to search for rumored gold there. Buddy, come on. (laughs) He didn't learn his lesson. (laughs) No. But he's not sailing, so... He probably doesn't want to touch a boat, to be quite honest. Raynal, Alec, and Henry Forget accepted the offer from McPherson, but Musgrave found that a steamboat captain who was a friend of his just so happened to be in the port as well, so he took passage back to Melbourne with him. Yeah. Upon returning home, Musgrave found his wife slightly upset that he hadn't returned immediately upon getting back to civilization safely, but she was relieved that he was finally home. And he was relieved to find that his family was in good health and in good spirits. You definitely, that's a very funny, like, that's so funny. The wife is pissed. Like, you had 40, I could have had you 40 days yeah. earlier. It is like a movie scene where, like, she finally sees him for the first time and slaps him, but then starts crying and hugs him. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's definitely one of those scenes. That is so wholesome. But guess what Musgrave did next, Evan? He got another boating adventure and wanted to go right out back to sea. Kind of. (laughs) Instead of finally relaxing, he decided to go to the New South Wales government offices to report that another ship should head to the Auckland Islands in case someone was actually still there. He's kind of still thinking about that fire that he saw. Right. Being well-intentioned, he was asked to head up the expedition back to the islands at a high pay rate and with the benefit of new clothing and gear. 
So on October 4th, Musgrave found himself once again back en route to the Auckland Islands. Oh my, <laughs> come on. He's home for like two weeks. <laughs> yeah, then he's on his way back. Jeez. The team aboard the steamer known as Victoria spent almost the whole of October exploring the Auckland Islands, finding signs of life, but nobody there. They found like whaling settlements they found the hardwick stuff they found some of the stuff from the invercall but i'm very happy that they had that they're on a steamer this time yes <laughs> like that gives me some relief can here. control it a little bit yeah they sailed out of the auckland island group on october 28th stopped by campbell island to make sure that nobody was there which campbell island was the original island that the grafton had started at and after stopping there headed home but to Musgrave's surprise, when the Victoria stopped at a port on the way back to Sydney to stock up on coal, he found that Raynal, Alec, and Henry Forget were also there. At the island, or excuse me, not the island, the place that they stopped at? At the yeah. port that they stopped at, yeah. Oh my gosh. The three men greatly regretted taking up McPherson on his offer, since the voyage home would end up taking them three months. <laughs> Come on. They still hadn't gotten home before Musgrave had time to go back to the Auckland Islands. What was the holdup? Just they couldn't find anyone to take them? Storms, and then the... Sure. They, I, I think one of the ships they were on shipwrecked, so they got... So they had to go, like, get a f new boat to hop on and yeah. get there. Yeah, it was just a complete mess. <laughs> they were like, we should have just gone with you on the steamer, bro. I'll never complain about my canceled flights ever again. <laughs> yeah, right? However, Raynal, in the meantime, had discovered something that Musgrave hadn't about the islands that he had just revisited. In a newspaper, the story of the Invercald had finally reached New Zealand and Australia. Captain George Delgarno had relayed the story in a very vague narrative, not naming either Andrew Smith or Robert Holding in his recounting. It was later found that Delgarno had made his way home from Peru stopping on the way to inform the owners of the Invercald of its demise, as well as write a longer narrative of what had happened before finally returning to Aberdeen to his son and daughter. So, hmm. and in none of these things does he ever mention Robert Holding by name, and he barely mentions Andrew Smith by name. He pretty much, he calls him the mate, because he's like, I think that's just how shipmen kind of referred to their sure. crew because the captain is the captain, obviously. And then he has designated people to be his mates. So if you just say the mate, it's the first mate. So he just wanted all the credit for like, Hey, I survived. Yeah, pretty much. And he like didn't have any very good details on what mm -hmm. happened and stuff like that. So yeah, he went to Peru for a little vacation, got, got like, some sun, got some help from the doctors there and then went back to England. <laughs> Andrew Smith, meanwhile, had made his way back to Aberdeen as well, eventually writing his own version of the story in September of 1865 for a local newspaper. After September of 1865, neither Smith nor Delgarno showed up on a public record once again, or ever again. <laughs> well, uh -huh. at least not that anyone, like, really cared to find. Right, just deleted from history. Yeah, so that's where their story pretty much ends. Robert Holding had barely gotten a mention in either of their stories and ended up penniless and living as a beggar in Peru before boarding a small Welsh ship to make some money to get back home. The ship landed in Rotterdam in the Netherlands and Holding went back home to visit his family by October of 1865. After this, he resumed a sailing career, finally giving it up in 1888 when he moved to Canada and became a machinist. 
He eventually set out to the gold fields and made actually made enough money to buy a hotel. <laughs> I love that story. And so he got back to see his family in 188 1865. 1865, got yep, it. Yep, so the same year that like the yeah. Grafton crew was rescued. Right. And then he sailed till 88, and then he owned a hotel in Canada after that. So that was his career until he died in January of 1933. Good for him. Having left, a family, having left his family a memoir of his experiences that he wrote seven years earlier at the age of 86. So he lived to 93. Thank God he wrote it down. Yeah, so he he wrote down his entire experiences. And I think that's where we get like most of the story from is him and Smith's accountings because they mm-hmm. actually like wrote more detailed accounts because right. Delgarno was kind of insane. Yeah. He definitely lost Delgarno, that is, I agree with what you said before, lost like all grasp of reality. Yeah, and lost all respect for me. <laughs> yes. After Raynal, Alec, and Henry headed back to land in Australia, they all kind of went their separate ways. Alec returned to the sea, working aboard a ship based in Liverpool. Another guy that just goes right back to sailing. I mean, to be fair, when you are a sailor in this time period, that's all you know. I mean, yeah, you, I mean, it's their career. They yeah. haven't done anything, assuming they haven't done anything else. It's not like there's just magical job trees or handing out jobs. <laughs> That'd be terrifying. That'd be terrifying, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they did record The Lord of the Rings in New Zealand, so I mean, maybe there was. Do you think that there was ever a point where the cast and crew got uh, shipwrecked? <laughs> I don't think so. Huh. Maybe. Henry Forget moved inland on Australia, having had enough of the sailing life, and he went to work for his uncle who owned a sheep farm. And I, this guy, it completely makes sense that he gave up on sailing because the first time he went out, he got captured by native people and got leprosy. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> and lost his nose. And then he spent an, a year on an inhospitable island. No luck on the seas. Raynal remained under medical care for a while because his health was still suffering from the same on and off illness that he had been dealing with since they left Campbell Island in 1863. And this is going to be a running thing for him. He just kind of has chronic health issues yeah eventually musgrave and his family settled in sydney and kind of joined Raynal for a short period of time musgrave using his good recommendations from the captain of the victoria as well as from john mcpherson got a job working for the department of trade and customs in the port at sydney shortly thereafter he published a book about his experience titled Ugh. all right Cast Away on the Auckland Isles, a narrative of the wreck of the Grafton from the private journals of Captain Thomas Musgrave with a map and some account of the Aucklands. Outrageous title. Like, I love, we've talked about before, I love book titles it's, back in this time. It's the same as the Fox Sister story where all of the books are oh, like yeah. a scientific paper headline. <laughs> the book was a, a major success locally, and it was later published in London under an even longer name of. Cast Away on the Auckland Isles, a narrative of the wreck of the Grafton and of the escape of the crew after 20 months suffering from the private journals of Captain Thomas Musgrave together with some account of the Aucklands. For reference, that's three lines of Microsoft. <laughs> three lines of single-spaced 11-point font. <laughs> so that's not fitting on the title or the cover of a book, for sure. <laughs> and then we got it all condensed into a book called Island of the Lost. <laughs> Four words. Keeping it brief. In 1867, Musgrave was given the job of harbor boat captain in Sydney and was in charge of a staff of six people. 
and later he was put in charge of a number of lighthouses, where he would later eventually die at one of them, Point Lonsdale Lighthouse in Victoria, on November 7th, 1891, at the age of just 59. So, he Wait, died pretty yeah, young. Way too soon then. Uh, he di- lived for 27 years after he got back home. Right. Yeah. I spent- wanted all of them to live till 1930. I know, right? I, I wish they all would. Raynal, for his part, left Melbourne and apparently may have practiced mesmerism for a short time before before going back to Campbell Island to find a cachet of copper. Can't keep the man out the game. But that is all rumor. According to Raynal himself, his only goal was getting back to France. He first went to Sydney where he, quote, reproached them in severe terms, end quote with them being Uncle Musgrave and Charles Sarpy, for not remembering their promise to send a rescue ship. The two men had excuses, such as lack of money, but assured Raynal that they had alerted the authorities. And upon checking this claim, Raynal found that they were telling the truth, but that they had waited 13 months before recording it. So just a few months after they promised. <laughs> Which was Yeah, and it was way outside of the bounds of like, the government's ability to do anything about it. <laughs> right. Oh my God, they definitely blew that one. Yeah, so he gave him a little bit of an earful. But nonetheless, Raynal sailed from Sydney to London in April of 1867, finally arriving back in France at the end of August of the same year. He lived with his parents for a time while he worked on his book, which was published by a very famous French publishing firm known as Librairie de la Hachette in 1870. It was immediately a bestseller and was translated to German the next year, English in 1874, and Norwegian in 1879. The author's name was for some reason kept anonymous, however, and even though it was still in print at the time of writing Island of the Lost, Reynal's name is still not on the cover of this book. Interesting. But it's like pretty obvious to anyone who reads it that it's his book because it's so similar to Musgrave's accounting, so... Right. Everyone kind of knows. Using the power of deduction, you can pretty much nail yeah. it here. It also had a very long name, but it was in French. So, we 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 Do you want to try and read the the French name of this book, Evan, for <clears> our <throat> listeners? S'il vous plaît. Let me try and find it quick. Ah, there it is. So, it's it starts with lace. This is what uh Reynal's book was called. Les naufrages au vint sur un récif de il Eckland, récit authentique illustré de forty gravures sur bois dessinés par a de nouvelles. I just insulted an entire nation. <laughs> I'm sorry. They're going to protest you in the streets. <laughs> I don't know how many French they're, people are listening. <laughs> they're just raising baguettes. <laughs> yeah, that was that was exactly how it was pronounced to a T when it was published. But yeah, he got a lot of awards for that book. He uh, eventually secured a good job after writing it, working for the Paris Municipal Council, and he rose through the ranks of public servants there. He ended up receiving various awards for his writing, as well as advised scientific exploration teams on where to set up observatories on those sub-Antarctic islands. So he kind of told them, don't go to Auckland, go to Campbell. (laughs) Yeah, never go to Auckland. The one thing that never changed for Reynal, though, was his poor health. In 1888, he had to take sick leave from work and was never able to be well enough to work again. He was granted early retirement in 1889, and less than a decade later, on April 28, 1898, he passed away at the age of 
68. So he at least had a, a longer life, but yeah. it seems like it was punctuated by a lot of struggle health-wise. Right, so, right. After their ordeal, interest in the Auckland Islands spiked. Expeditions there set up outposts for shipwreck victims with rations and survival tools, which came in handy because the Grafton and Invercald were by no means the last wreck there. One of the most famous was that of the General Grant in May of 1866, which ended up with 86 people dead and 10 survivors who were trapped there for 18 months, according to a headline from a contemporary edition of the Sydney Morning Herald. That's ins- like that's a crazy death count. That's a big one. Not almost 100 people on board and almost all of them died. Yeah, that's like just over 10%. Uh, that's a little worse than the the Invercult, and they had more people. Right. So that's that stuff. <laughs> We're counting a lot of percentages today. Later, scientific explorations would venture to the islands, with some attempting what the Hardwick colony did and finding the same results. I don't know if they all got as drunk as the Hardwick colony did, but they never survived. <laughs> I'm assuming not all of them ended in... We don't have enough jail space. Yeah, so. And the, the, the doctor's sister trying to shoot him and herself. Yeah. But as the era of wind-powered sailing kind of faded out, the Auckland Islands moved out of shipping paths, and it was no longer a no- notorious graveyard for ships. In 1934, it was declared a nature preserve, and the birds, plants, and seals were eventually protected. In the midst of World War II, coastal watch stations were set up on the islands and manned mainly by scientists, which was just an extra measure to find enemy ships as well as to explore the islands, which led to the first ever complete and accurate map of the Auckland Islands. Today, they remain a protected nature preserve and a rich breeding ground for a variety of species. I hope one of them is seals. It is. There are still seals there, so. But yeah, that is kind of the end of our tale. Of the Grafton and the Invercald. I'm very glad that they finally just made it a nature preserve so people would stop trying to inhabit this thing. Yeah, right. Give it up. This is you, just, we can't, we can't colonize this. Sorry. You right. can take trips there. It, it's expensive, obviously, and you have to go through like the New Zealand Committee of Wildlife or whatever it's mm-hmm. called. But yeah, you can go take trips there. It's just, it's a tough place to go. I hope that as part of the preparation process, we are now the official podcast of all things you need to know and why not to go with the I hope so. If you've heard this and you still want to go, which like, to be fair, I still want to go. Well, because it'd be yeah. kind of cool. But, it would be kind of cool to see Because there's still happened. like remnants of like a pig white and like some remnants of the boat left and stuff. Yeah. So it will be cool to see. But yeah, it's a very remote, remote spot. But I think it'd be a lot easier to take a speedboat there than a schooner or a steamboat. So, you know what? I'm only going to this if we're on a like aircraft carrier like i know i know <laughs> industrial that strength yes i know that's not going down but i do think that one of my takeaways from this story it was how much circumstance can change a person mm-hmm. where like people talk about especially in cases like true crime stuff talk about nature versus nurture where like was how you were raised more important or is how you like the environment you grew up in more important which of those factors into it more and this story kind of showed me that it doesn't matter how you were raised. Like, we mm-hmm. were raised very well, but if I was in holding situation and, or one of the other guys withholding, I don't know how I'm going to react. Like, yeah. it's a dire situation. And without someone leading you, 
dire straits, you know, you could end up like the guy offering to pick lots. Like, I don't know. Yeah, that guy was not pop. Yeah, I'm sure he lost lots in the yeah, end of I, it. But they never mentioned those guys again. So they all die. Probably for the best that they don't mention the names. So, but, but yeah, it was just, it's very interesting. It was that. And like, like I mentioned earlier, how mundane this was. And then just punctuated by like moments of just pure action and adrenaline. Right. I mean, to not just settle into that mun- mundanity, the mundane of every single life and build an entire the monotony. boat. The monotony. Thank you. And just build a boat to go and like, just come to the realization that we are going to die on this island. We just have to do something about it. Like that is the most human, like it encompasses the human spirit tenfold. Like yeah. that's incredible. And it just makes it more, it makes it such a compelling story, especially when you see both sides of it. Like if it was just the Grafton, it'd still be a good story, but you wouldn't get both sides of it. You mm-hmm. wouldn't get like what would happen if they didn't go this way. Right. Like it would have ended up like the other group and they probably would have all died within the first couple months. Can you imagine if the fire from the first group just got out of control and burned the entire They did. Down? They literally set a hillside on fire. They're, like when yeah. they went to the lookout station, they set a hillside on fire right on Musgrave. They're like, maybe it'll burn long enough and someone will see it. Yeah. And they'll come save us. But no, nope. ne- never worked. Never worked. And then the other guys just started a campfire and got saved, sure. which is frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad for holding, but like the other two, I'm just like, you did nothing to deserve this. All so. in 1864. Yep. In it was started in 63 for the Grafton, into 64, into 65. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was a while. But yeah, that's the story. That That is, I, I love the story. It was fascinating. An absolutely incredible story. And if you want to keep the conversation with us going, you can do that at our social medias at, or excuse me, on X at gems underscore history. You find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco, myself at whatevskis. You can also find us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Patreon, uh, and TikTok at gems of history podcast. Just give us a look see and you'll be able to find us. Yeah, go rate and review us too. We don't ask you guys to do that all that much, but it does help us out. Oh, yeah. And we appreciate it. And with, tell your friends, you know? Yeah, with the algorithm gods. Go tell your friends that you got a cool sailing story that you want them to listen to, because I, I think this is a cool sailing story. So, just give a couple yo-ho, yo-ho. Yeah, you know, you just be like, hey, matey. <laughs> and then listen to our podcast. Yeah, go to patreon.com slash gems of history podcast if you want to be involved in listener polls to pick topics for the month, get ad-free episodes, get them early, all that fun stuff. And you get a sticker. Oh, which yeah. is super fun. It is a very cool section. So, yeah, that's all we got for you guys this week. We will be back next week with a kind of another sailing story, honestly. In a, a way. Little, a little bit. In a way, there's... It's an, it's an expedition story. Also, we're kind of around the same time, a little earlier. There's boats present. Yeah. At t- time to time. Yeah, and uh, people taking things from native people. So, <laughs> that part of it stays the same. That's the one silver lining of the story, I would say. They no- colon- oh, no colonizing? No colonizing. I mean, they tried. <laughs> it's, yeah, they definitely did. Hardwick was like, oh, there's people here? So are we. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you guys for listening. We hope you guys enjoyed this series. It was a lot of fun to research and a lot of fun to talk about. So if you guys want more topics like this, let us know. And if you have any other topic suggestions, go get on the Patreon. Tell us about them. But until then, we will talk to you guys later. Everyone, stay polished out there. We love you.